0: Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Altered States of Knowledge, The Attainment of Gnosis in the Hermetica by Dr. Wouter J. Hanegraaff, University of Amsterdam. One of my favorite scholars, and I'm very glad to be getting back to some hardcore academic work This is from the International Journal of the Platonic Tradition 2, 2008, and by Brill, of course, most of their works, including my buddy Chris Larrick's book and others, are exorbitant and impossible for us to ever attain in this mortal body. Unless, you know, you win the lottery, you can buy those books. I'm joking, of course, but this is good research that we need to look into, and let's get to it. Research into the so-called philosophical... Hermetica has long been dominated by the foundational scholarship of André-Jean Fustigière. I will always say that name slightly badly. My French is uh, bad for a Canadian. Who strongly emphasized their Greek and philosophical elements. Since the late 1970s, this perspective has given way to a new and more complex one, due to the work of another French scholar, Jean-Pierre Mahé, who could profit from the discovery of new textual sources and called much more attention to the Egyptian and religious dimensions of the Hermetic writings. This article addresses the question of how, on these foundations, we should evaluate and understand the frequent Hermetic references to profound but wholly ineffable, revelatory, and salvational insights received during ecstatic states. Festugier dismissed them as literary fictions, whereas Mahé, Took them much more seriously as possibly reflecting ritual practices that took place in Hermetic communities. Based upon close reading of three central texts, Corpus Hermeticum I, 13, and 6, and challenging existing translations and interpretations, this article argues that the author of the Hermetic Corpus assumed a sequential hierarchy of levels of knowledge in which the highest and most profound knowledge, Gnosis, is attained only during ecstatic or altered states of consciousness that transcend reality. While the Hermetic teachings have often been described as unsystematic, inconsistent, incoherent, or confused, in fact, they are grounded in a precise and carefully formulated doctrine of how the Hermetic initiate may move from the domain of mere rational discourse to the attainment of several trans stages of direct experiential knowledge, and thereby from the limited and temporal domain of material reality to the unlimited and eternal one of mind. Introduction, the problem of language. Like any other academic discipline, the history of religions relies on discursive language to make itself understood It is only within the order of critical rational discourse that scholars can discuss and evaluate one another's claims and thereby contribute to the progress of knowledge. More than their colleagues in other disciplines, however, scholars of religion are often faced with the strangely paradoxical task of having to make sense of textual sources which explicitly deny the relevance and indeed the very possibility of what the scholar is trying to do, the so-called Philosophical Hermetica, a corpus of texts from late antiquity attributed to or associated with the legendary sage Hermes Trismegistus, are an example par excellence. Skepticism about the modern scholar's basic tool, discursive language, is a recurrent theme in the Hermetica and central to their message. God is addressed as the inexpressible, the unspeakable, named only by silence. Note Corpus Hermeticum 131 on that. The one who cannot be expressed in words and about whom nothing worthy can be said because our speech is no match for him. This is a very common thing within the entire mystical tradition um, leading up through Meister Eckhart to even the likes of Thomas Merton. We see this. The idea that the Corpus Hermeticum might have had a larger role in the development of religion and spirituality over the last 2,000 years is by no means insignificant. Reasoned discourse, Logos, has a respectable but strictly propedeutic role. It leads up to a point, but it does not reach as far as the truth, and the ultimate vision of divine reality will only be seen in the moment when you have nothing to say about it, and that is to say in a state of divine silence. Propadoidic means, of course, uh, a lesson before the lesson, really. And for more references in the Corpus Hermeticum to silence and the, the ineffable unknowability of experience of God, see also Corpus Hermeticum 18, 12, 9, 10, 10, 5, and 13, 2, on the understanding in silence, and 13, 3, and 13, 16, for more on this ineffable gnosis and knowledge through silence, which is, is probably striking many of you as it strikes me as uh, very much a breath of fresh air to hear scholars actually finally looking at text seriously enough to understand what it is we're, we're doing with them and to the extent that actually what we're doing with them is something that has been done with them before and moreover might be why they were written is to catalog this series of practices and approach to spiritual human life that we all in it, who are in it, take for granted. Because we were, again, raised in it or taught it by people who were taught it themselves. It's not like any of us went back to the Corpus Hermeticum and were like, what were these texts getting at? And then trying to reverse engineer a spirituality. You know, these spiritual traditions are organically passed down sometimes in part through religious orthodoxies or structures that have maintained elements and aspects. Other parts come through oral tradition. Other parts come through experiential practices. I mean, if rituals are contained, and then people do those rituals in the contained way they were created, you're going to have similar experiences to the people who first wrote them down. That's just logic. And in that way, our traditions continue and grow and the source texts like Corpus Hermeticum can be seen more clearly in light of the practices of the kinds of initiates who are actually seeking these experiences of God and their own divine self the gnosis Accordingly the two descriptions we have of an initiation into the hermetic mystery both culminate in the initiates attaining a supreme knowledge and spiritual understanding that cannot be taught sound familiar, but is a secret kept in silence for that see 13.3 and 13.16 of the Corpus Hermeticum. The unspeakable divinity is addressed by means of hymns sung in silence. In short, these texts are marked by the paradox of using language to tell the reader that language is powerless to convey the truth and claiming to convey a message by stating that it cannot be found anywhere on the page. If you want a deep look at how this plays out in, in spirituality and in theology, in postmodern philosophy and culture, that's what my main book is really about, The Ethics of Understanding God, which looks at how these experiences can be found in our current climate, philosophically and ethically. How, then, can scholars do justice to such texts, Some would take the postmodern way out by stating axiomatically that there is nothing beyond language and discourse. There's actually another way to do that, but okay. Any expression of linguistic skepticism is itself a linguistic statement and can thus be analyzed as a form of discourse. The problem is that the very axiom is flatly denied by the sources themselves, and hence, by taking this road, one implies that they are speaking nonsense rather than trying to take the sources seriously to begin with and make an effort to understand what they might mean on their own terms, scholars who choose this perspective end up correcting the sources' point of view by replacing them with agendas of their own. Others will try to somehow make the absent message present to their readers. The problem here is that scholars who take this road are still using the very medium, discursive language, which their sources tell them is inadequate to the task. Hence, the premise is, again, that the sources are mistaken in their linguistic skepticism. They think the truth cannot be expressed in words, but the scholar knows better and can do what they cannot. Now, this approach logically requires the scholar somehow to have direct, unmediated, non-linguistic access to the message. In other words, it requires him to be of a mystic of sorts himself, who somehow knows the truth from direct experience, and what is more, knows it better than those who wrote the texts. Many scholars in the contemporary study of religion, I'm referring to the religionist current, popular, particularly in the United States, practice something close to such an approach. Representatives of that tradition are, of course, Francis Yates and Mircha Eliade, um, Joseph Campbell. With various degrees of sophistication, These first two approaches have often been applied to the study of mysticism and various aspects of what is currently referred to as Western esotericism, including the Hermetic writings. Major scholars of the Hermetica, however, typically represent a third and different approach, that of erudite textual criticism and philology, on a basis of essentially descriptive historiography. The importance of such research can hardly be overstated, without the impressive erudition and attention to linguistic detail that characterizes the work of scholars such as, notably, André-Jean Foustugier and Jean-Paul Mahé. Undoubtedly, the two pillars of modern research in this field, any adequate understanding of the Hermetica would be simply impossible. But how does such scholarship, grounded as it is in the study of languages, deal with the Hermetic emphasis on the inadequacy of discursive language? The answer was formulated succinctly by Festugier in the very final lines of his Révelation Hermes Trismegiste. L'historien ne sait que ce que l'une dit, il ne penetre pas le secret de coeur. Nice. The scholar knows only what he is being told. He does not penetrate the secret of the heart. With these words, Festugier formulated a basic principle of sound historical research and of the critical study of religion generally. If it creates any problems in the study of the Hermetica, this is not because of the principle itself, but because it tends to be interpreted in an unnecessarily restrictive manner, as a quasi-positivist doctrine of descriptivism. According to... That doctrine which remains the orthodox position in the field, the scholar is allowed to repeat, translate, paraphrase, or summarize the exact statements of his discourse. In short, he may tell his reader, c'est que on lui dit, and of course he must put them in context. But going even one step beyond these acceptable procedures is seen as unscientific speculation and tends to be encountered with grave suspicion. The reasons for this attitude are easy enough to understand. Firstly, experts working on a very high level of linguistic and philological expertise naturally distrust those who do not have a similar background training, and they typically complain that comparativists and other general students of religion are not sufficiently aware of the technical problems involved so that they end up building their houses on sand. You see this with uh, Brian Marescu's uh, Immortality Key that recently came out. That's what happens when you don't go beyond the limits of your own knowledge and, but build your house upon the ground that is the only ground you know and ignore the indicators to go beyond it. In many cases, such criticism is entirely justified. It should be evident, however, how easily this attitude can prevent us from at even asking, let alone trying to answer important and entirely legitimate questions about the text under investigation and the meaning and use they may have had for their intended audience. This is the hermeneutic question that I would like to always remind us as of importance in understanding texts is to not just interpret them to our own context, but to think of the context they meant originally. It is undoubtedly true that in these domains of research, no house can be built without a foundation of thorough text, critical and philological analysis. But it is also true that foundations alone, no matter how solid, do not make a house. Yes, it's hard to ignore the fact that a lot of people just uh, loosely equate things or equivocate things roughly one to the other without um, actually studying the background of what that thing actually is. It's like well that that's how you how you get to uh, you know global languages being from Ireland or Egypt and representing aliens. I mean that's essentially the loose kind of thinking that leads you into some very basic errors that you can then end up trying to, like he said, like Connograff said, build your whole castle upon this thing because you saw you roughly equivocated something early on and then just ran with it forever after. A second reason for the descriptivist attitude is that historians who study religious texts and traditions tend to be afraid, again, quite understandably, of being perceived as not objective enough. As a result, they have a tendency to err on, in the opposite direction, particularly when dealing with materials that emphasize subjective experiences and unusual states of consciousness, which are cleverly very far removed from the stereotypical scholarly state of mind. The unfortunate result is that, in spite of all its refined attention to textual and linguistic detail, current research of the Hermetica still tends to read the sources selectively, and as a result, sometimes to misread them, I will attempt to demonstrate this by calling special attention to a series of statements and formulations concerned with the subjective experiences and unusual states of consciousness, the relevance and significance of which I believe has been largely overlooked. These aspects of the textual corpus have either not been registered on the screen of investigation at all, or if they were, they have been registered inadequately and incompletely, and their significance has not been sufficiently recognized. My further argument is that, hermeneutically, these passages should not only be taken seriously, but should be placed at the very center of attention in any analysis of the hermetic corpus as a whole. The heart of the hermetic message is precisely its emphasis on the centrality of a salvational and noetic experience, often referred to as gnosis, that cannot be verbalized and which is considered to be wholly superior to rational philosophical discussion. It is therefore with reference to this center that we should evaluate and assess the relative importance of all other aspects of the Hermetic corpus. Note I am, of course, referring perfectly aware of the objection that the corpus of the Philosophical Hermetica does not constitute a whole to begin with, and that any search for some unifying principle is therefore mere speculation. The fragmentary nature of the surviving corpus is obvious, but for reasons I will explain in the second section, I do not find the objection convincing either on textual or on theoretical grounds. The Hierarchy of Knowledge All serious scholars of the Hermetica have noted their considerable philosophical and doctrinal diversity, including multiple inconsistencies and contradictions. Like Garth Fowden, who addressed this problem in an excellent and provocative chapter of his Egyptian Hermes of 1986, I would argue that it can largely be resolved by taking seriously the concept of a hierarchy of types of knowledge that is explicitly emphasized in several key passages. In Corpus Hermeticum, Ten, verse 9. The principle is stated succinctly. Gnosis is the goal of episteme. Gnosis de estin episteme totelos. So gnosis gnosis is the basis of knowledge. Episteme is the root for epistemology, of course, and de estin episteme totelos for the reason, the goal. So you have gnosis, episteme, and telos got te- epist- epistemology and tele- teleology and gnosis modern translations of this sentence differ widely but all of them end up obscuring its very meaning and that makes sense because you have three heavy hitting words in the greek there gnosis epistemis, telos which is most clearly preserved by simply keeping the key terms untranslated yes yes that's what how how a Someone sensitive to philology and linguistics would do it. Yeah. Right? Most, but older scholarship, most of the time, would just make, you know, they choose those words and they say, how do I want gnosis to read? Do I want to read wisdom or knowledge? Do I want epistem to read? I mean, these words essentially often mean the same thing to most people gnosis and epistem. It's, it's really, it's really tragic the lack of philological knowledge behind most books that have been written on this subject. Stagier has uh, for translation La connaissance, elle et l'achievement de la science. <laughs> the achievement of science is how he translates epistemes to tell us. That's so far from what the words say. Copenhaver has knowledge is the goal of learning, where he discusses Fowden's translation along with some other options. Salomon, von Oyen, and Wharton have understanding. Is the fulfillment of knowledge? Okay. Quispel, in his Dutch translation, writes "kennis is de Frucht van der geheime wetenschap," thereby giving an unwarranted occult twist to the text. Nothing indicates that "episteme" or "episteme" means secret science. Geheime wetenschap in German, of course, is very similar. That would be "geheimniswissenschaft," Dutch and German art. Very close, like English. But yes, these, this, these sentences would be much more useful keeping the Greek terms gnosis, epistemes, and telos in their original language, absolutely. The same hierarchy is explained and developed further in Corpus Hermeticum 9, verse 10. If you are mindful, ennuinti is the Greek, Ashlepias, these things will seem true to you, but they will seem incredible, apista, if you are not mindful, aguinti. To understand, noesai, is to have faith, pistoisei, and not to have faith. Apistisai is not to understand, me noesai. Reason discourse, logos, does not get to the truth, but mind, nous, is powerful, and when it has been guided by reason, logos, up to a point, it has the means to get as far as the truth. In other words, although reason, logos, and faith, pistis are necessary. The actual gnosis transcends both. The passage continues by stating that it is given to us by an act of God, and we will see how literally this was taken. From these and other examples, Fouden has concluded convincingly, in my opinion, that doctrinal variations reflect an intention that different successive levels or steps of spiritual enlightenment should provide access to different successive levels of truth about man, the world, and God. Note, a further excellent example is Corpus Hermeticum 13, verse 15, where Hermes tells Tat that Paimandrus has transmitted to him, quote, no more than has been written down, because he knew that on my own I would be able to understand everything, to hear what I want and see everything. In other words, during the final stage of the initiatory journey, the initiate has to leave rational understanding behind and trust his experience alone. And again, this experience is described as noetic, visual and auditory. So you just naturally know things in an in a overwhelming spiritual sense is, is how noetic is usually means. Although all three are to be understood in a higher sense, the reference to is to true knowledge, vision, and hearing by means of superior powers of perception that have come with the purification or healing process described in Corpus Hermeticum 13, 8 to 9. Yeah, this is the before the days of fluoride, right? <laughs> Note also in Foudin, 1986-103, uh, I suspect that Foudin goes a step too far in applying this principle to all the writings linked to the name of Hermes. That is, including the so-called technical Hermetica, but important, though this problematics is, it can be disregarded here. I love it when footnotes make note of something that can then be left behind. Hence, what might look like irreconcilable differences or even contradictions the so-called monistic and dualistic passages being the most frequently discussed example, may instead be interpreted as reflecting successive levels of understanding. No shit, eh? What is true on one level being less than perfectly true on a higher level, and furthermore, if rational discourse represents a lower level of, in principle, as frequently repeated by the sources, then one should not be surprised to find that strict logical consistency is not their very first priority. Roloff van der Broek correctly notes that there is no irrefutable proof for Foudon's theory. However, rejecting it as speculation merely for the reason that would clearly exemplify the descriptivist fallacy criticized in the previous section, which considers it illegitimate to move beyond letting texts speak for themselves. The fact is that No scholar of the Hermetic corpus can avoid taking position with respect to its internal inconsistencies, and it should be understood that any such position is an interpretation that goes beyond the empirical data. By far the most common alternative to Foudon's theory is that of questioning the intellectual sophistication or intelligence of the anonymous authors, compilers, and editors who were supposedly oblivious to logical and doctrinal contradictions. Yeah, right. Like Foudon's theory, this one cannot be proven, but its implicit arrogance is quite evident. It supposes that due to their superior technical expertise, modern scholars see far more sharply than those folks in late antiquity who produced and used the sources. And it often implies that rational philosophers can expose religious enthusiasts as being confused about their own beliefs. Ooh. Honographs getting, getting harsh, getting sharp. Since nobody knows for sure how to account for the inconsistencies, it seems much more reasonable to give those enthusiasts at least the benefit of the doubt and to accept Fowl's perspective as more plausible than its alternative. Therefore, I make no excuse for provisionally treating the philosophical Hermetica as one corpus and for placing the three texts under discussion here, Corpus Hermetica one, Corpus Hermeticum, 13, and 16 in a sequential order that suggests a progressive development through several levels of initiation and Gnostic thought. I am perfectly aware of the fact that strict proof for the correctness of such a sequence is not possible, but I add that the same goes not only for any other possible sequence, but even for the very statement that such a sequence is mere speculation. My final argument in favor of a hermetic hierarchy of knowledge reflected in a sequence of texts that described a process through successive levels of initiation is quite simply that it does better justice to the sources than the alternatives and that it allows for an amount of intertextual consistency and internal logic which does not implicitly offend the intelligence of its presumed authors, editors, compilers, and readers. Yeah, so up until... Hannegraaf here, and you know Amsterdam, and some of these other esoteric scholars. Basically, everyone who is looking at not just hermetic literature, but a lot of spiritual texts in the realm of religious studies. And this is partly due to the fact that they're problematically, uh, usually undereducated in theology, un- unfortunately. Um, tend to look at these old texts, and where they don't see a cohesion and understanding, they assume that the authors themselves were not so bright or incapable of seeing logical inconsistencies in their own work and essentially dumber, lesser humans. I mean, this is something that's been being overthrown by academic research uh, since the the last hundred years in quite a major way is, is giving some credit to the authors of texts themselves and not assuming that they were just vulgar dum-dums prior to our own enlightened 21st century thinking. Pestugier may have voiced a widely shared opinion when he stated that la culture philosophique de Hermatiste est mediocre et sa pensée sans originalité et sans vigueur. But there is some truth to this. It still concerns the strictly philosophical level only, not the religious one, that the sources themselves consider all important. The quote said um, from Pestugier, the hermitist's philosophical culture is mediocre, and its thought is without originality and without vigor. That's what the scholar thought in 2006. Poimandras, from didactic instruction to visionary teaching. I just also want to say like, how amazing it is that Honograph that actually was willing to take that step and say, hey, maybe the fact that this monad and dyad contradiction is present in the in the same body of literature shows us something about the people that wrote that literature compiled it maybe it tells us something about what they believed and what they practiced rather than most us other scholars if not the entire intellectual western world looked at that contradiction and said oh so they were too stupid to realize that that there's a contradiction between the monad and the dyad. Oh, well, we should discard these spiritual texts because these people were so intellectually inferior they couldn't even see a contradiction between monad and dyad. And Hanagraph is the first one to come along and say, what if they're talking about successive levels of understanding and what's true at the level beyond shows that the level below us is less true and that in that way we are heuristically, as it were, progressing up a ladder like Jacob from lesser knowledge to greater knowledge. You know, we have this beautiful saying in the Kabbalah that below the supernal svihot, sephirot, we we contra- duality appears as contradiction, but above the supernal sefirot, or sfirot, they appear as unity. Contradiction appears as unity. So below and above the abyss of da'at, of where knowledge lives, things are different. And that's what the Hermeticum, could be read to be saying. Hanegraaff aware of his choice by putting these texts together, these chapters together, but thinks it's not a bad choice to make, giving credit to the original tradition that they come from. A considerable part of the Hermetica consists of didactic dialogues in which a teacher provides a pupil with information about the nature of the world, man, and God, and how they are related. This kind of knowledge belongs to the sphere of philosophy and theology and lends itself to expression and discussion by means of discursive language. Foudon has plausibly argued that the recurrent expression, general discourses, logoi) but see also the expression exodiakoi logoi, refers to the texts of this kind, which were understood as pertaining to knowledge that was important and necessary, but still belong to lower stages in the progress towards Gnosis. The discourse on the Ogdoad and the Ennead strongly supports this view. Before initiating his pupil into higher knowledge, Hermes Trismegistus reminds him of the progress he has made thanks to the books, and after the initiation he instructs him to make a report of it and write it down in hieroglyphs on steles of turquoise. This presumably is the very text that we are reading, unless we have ourselves gone through the initiatic rebirth. However, we will not understand it. He who has not first been born from God and is still at the level of the general and further discourses is not able to read the contents of this book, even if he has a clear conscience and does not do or consent to anything shameful. These these quotes are from the fragment of the Nag Hammadi that is part of the Corpus Hermeticum. And again, so it's very significant that a a crucial part of the Corpus Hermeticum texts were only discovered in the 20th century with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi library. So a key text was missing all the way back through the last 2,000 years, all the way through Ficino and Ludovico Lazzarelli's translations. They were all missing some crucial content, and we are likely still missing, missing other crucial content today. That's important to remember. In short... An ethical life and proper philosophical training by means of book study and oral instruction are necessary as preparation, but they do not suffice, because discursive language simply does not get as far as the truth. This is a crucial hermetic thinking, and again that's from the paraphrasing Corpus Hermeticum 9, verse 10. A higher level of instruction is described in the first treatise of the Corpus Hermeticum known as the Poimandras, because it is largely concerned with how the world came into existence, it has often been referred to as a creation myth, and compared with Genesis. But such a label is misleading. We are not dealing with a mythical narrative, but with the description of a vision. Quote, Once, when thought, anoya, came to me of the things that are and my thinking, soared high and my bodily senses were suspended, Like someone heavy with sleep from too much eating or toil of the body, an enormous being completely unbounded in size seemed to appear to me and call my name and say to me, What do you want to hear and see? What do you want to learn and know from your understanding? Kai noesis matean kai who are you? I asked. I am Poimandris, he said. Mind of sovereignty. I know what you want, and I am with you everywhere. As demonstrated by Roloff van in a recent article, this opening scene has very close parallels with Jewish apocalyptic literature, and he specifically discusses the relevance in this regard of the text contained in the Cologne Mani Codex. For example, both in the Apocalypse of Enos And the Apocalypse of Sem, the protagonist, is busy reflecting, thinking, or pondering about the world, how it has come into existence and who has created it. And while he is in this state of philosophical reflection, an angel appears to him who proceeds to reveal the answers to his questions. That Poimandras' vision takes place in an ecstatic or trance-like condition of some kind is evidence from the description. The body is rendered passive and the senses are put on hold, thereby allowing free reign to the higher faculties of the soul. Since the visionary is clearly a philosopher of sorts who has been pondering the things that are, one understands that this higher faculty is introduced as dianoia, thinking. But in fact, it turns out to be endowed with at least two higher senses, equivalent to the bodily ones. After having asked him what he wants to hear and see, Poimandras continues not by telling him how the world was created, but by showing him. And the vision appears to be accompanied by sound. Actually makes me think of the the auditory elements that are so overwhelming if you do DMT or other intense similar uh, entheogens or even just ecstatic ritual work without distractions like music corrupting your experience uh, it's really important to to do ritual work and to do these things without music because music will mask or obliterate the actual music of the spheres and the sounds that you can hear uh, auditorily in your soul from from doing leaving the silence that is god the silence is god you need to leave that there so god can speak if you're playing music or you know have people around you making noise then what are are you even doing the hermetica consistently state that apart from normal bodily sight there is a higher faculty of vision referred to as the eyes of the heart or of the mind the true nature of the regenerated man is perceived only by this higher faculty. By gazing with bodily sight, you do not understand what I am. I am not seen with such eyes. One of the problems we always have with uh, scholars and scholarship is that you generally still have this prevailing rejection on mass that humans have different experiences and that people on mystical paths of initiation and practice have any valid experience at all that a scholar or academic wouldn't have is outright discarded and not considered even a possibility amongst most academic researchers
1: and now a word from our sponsors
0: This Dr. Vauder Hanegraaff, the LBRP for the first time at his apartment in Amsterdam and Hanegraaff was apparently unimpressed and I I said to my old student when we talked on the phone, I said, what did you expect? I mean, you think you can just get up and do like the LBRP or ritual work and have some onlooker or some passive participant be amazed? They don't know the visualizations, which is the majority of the work, uh, the vibratory techniques might surprise but more likely scare people or think make them think it's laughable um, and they haven't had any of these initiations so they don't have the foundation upon which these ritual practices can ignite with things and structures within the sphere of our sensation and so they're not igniting anything within the sphere it's like playing music for a deaf person and then being, well like how, how did you enjoy that? They don't have the prerequisites for that knowledge, just like the Corpus Hermeticum says, it's a a problem actually described in the text itself that we're looking at. By gazing with bodily sight, you do not understand what I am. I am not seen with such eyes. I, was, I wasn't impressed the first time I did the LBRP or, or Middle Pillar. I was surprised that they seemed to do something, unlike most of the Wiccan rituals and Druidic stuff I had been practicing from books as well. Um, but when I did those, it seemed, okay, something else is going on. Maybe there's a bit more juice in them. But it was repeated practice, devotion, initiation, contemplation on a daily basis that actually gave these things power and brought me up to being able to see without eyes. It seems of the utmost importance to me to note that the Poimandras contains two successive visions within the vision and that they are squarely linked to the two parts of the question that the visionary asks of Poimandras. I wish to learn about the things that are, to understand their nature and to know God. Corpus Hermeticum 13.3, and also compare that with Corpus Hermeticum 7.2. In response to the first part of the question about the nature of the things that are, Poimandras himself changes his appearance, and the visionary sees an unlimited expanse of clear and joyful light, for which he spontaneously experiences feelings of love. He then sees how a frightening snake-like darkness appears, watery and smoking like a fire, producing a wailing roar and emitting an inarticulate cry. This call is answered by a holy word, Logos Hagios, that comes from the light and descends on this dark nature, Physis. Poimandras now gives an explanation. The light, Poimandris, and mind are all one, and the same reality, and this reality is the visionary's God, your God, hosos theos. And what is more, the visionary's own mind is one with it. The light-giving word is the son of God, and is therefore also the son of the visionary's own mind, and it is due to this faculty that he is able to see and hear. It seems to me that a distinction is implied between God, the Father, as the ultimate divine reality on the one hand, and his perceptible manifestation as the visionary's God, Poimandras, on the other. God, the Father, as he exists in and of himself, remains wholly transcendent, and at the end of the Poimandras, he will be formally thanked and prayed to. Poimandras, as the divine mind and light, in contrast, is the visionary's own mind and light. Presumably, it is only as such that the ultimate God reveals himself. Note, to prevent any misunderstanding, Hanegraaff says, I do not mean to suggest that there are two separate gods. Rather, a distinction is suggested between the unmanifest and the manifest sides of God, not unlike what we find, for example, in medieval Jewish mysticism, as summarized by Gershom Scholem, Quote, The Zohar expressly distinguishes between two worlds, which both represent God. First, a primary world, the most deeply hidden of all, which remains insensible and unintelligible to all but God. The world of Ein Sof, also called often the Limitless. And secondly, one joined into the first, which makes it possible to know God. The two in reality form one in the same way as the coal and the flame, that is to say. The coal exists also without a flame, but its latent power manifests itself only in its light. Sholem, 1961. So here we have the Kabbalistic understanding that the the veils of negative existence contain God or conceal God. The Ensof is God that we don't know, that we can't know. And the Tree of Life is the manifested God from the limitless light that we can know, but both are equally God, right? It's a similar thinking to Trinitarianism, which people make a much bigger deal of. Oh, how can I possibly understand this? It's like get your get your head on straight. Come on. The real thing I would criticize, though, here in this in this note by by Honograph is he he jumps directly from the texts here to the Zohar, medieval Jewish mysticism, to find the next example of this kind of thinking, and skips over the entire. Contemplative Christian tradition, which also held that kind of thinking the entire time. So again, you have scholars of religion just wholesalely ignoring the entire religious history of the West and focusing in on something popular like Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah to explain the um, interpretations of thought rather than a prevalent mystical tradition you have in the in christianity that was alive and well throughout this entire time you don't need to go to the zohar to understand this kind of thinking you can find it in meister eckhart who who really does represent a tradition of christian mysticism that has been alive and well the entire time and is more prevalent today than it ever has been it's just ignored because we like to look at the worst examples of everything From such a perspective, Ho Sos Theos in the Poimandras would be the divine fire knowable to the visionary as Poimandras, but this visible manifestation does not exhaust the infinity of God. Poimandras' short explanation leads up to a second visionary episode, or vision within the vision, the significance of which I believe has tended to be overlooked in previous scholarship. This is why Hanagraaff rocks. The first vision had the visionary in the role of an essentially passive spectator, receiving visionary and auditory instruction about how the world came into being. The second one, however, which answers the question of how to know God, is introduced by a forceful appeal to the visionary. He must now fix his mind on the light and get to know it. He must now fix his mind on the light and get to know it. Note in Corpus Hermeticum one 6, a la de noe tofos, whereas Noc and Fustigier write, fix ton esprit sur lumière. Copenhagener writes, understand the light. Hanegraaff says, I consider this unfortunate. The sentence must be seen in connection with the vision that follows, in which the visionary and Poimandres do actually gaze fixedly into each other's eyes. One might say that from an armchair philosopher who is watching the show, he must become an active Gnostic, seeking to know his own mind as the divine mind. Note in the sense, of course, of somebody who seeks to attain Gnosis, not in the sense of an adherent to a Gnostic system. Crucial point there. This confrontation with his very own essence is impressively described as Poimandras and the visionary fixing each other with their gaze for a long time. Quote, fix your mind on the light, then, and get to know it. After he said this, he looked me in the face for such a long time that I trembled at his appearance. But when he raised his head, I saw in my mind the light consisting of powers beyond number, which had become a boundless cosmos. The fire, contained and subdued by a great power, had received a fixed position. This I perceived in my mind due to the words of Poimandres. Since I was beyond myself, he spoke to me again. In your mind you have seen the archetypal form, the pre-principle that exists before an infinite beginning. It's beautiful. And from Corpus Hermeticum 1, 7 through 8, in view of vanderbroek's reference to Jewish apocalyptic literature, it is suggestive to compare this with the passage such as found in, for example, Second Enoch. But I have gazed into the eyes of the Lord like rays of the shining sun and terrifying the eyes of a human being. See quotation and discussion in uh, Eliot Wolfson, 1994. Again, as always, I say, Read Wolfson, read Moshe adel they're the preeminent Kabbalistic scholars of the day. And both actually very good. Like, brilliant. Later we will see the initiate into the hermetic mystery exclaiming, I see myself. From the passage just quoted, it is clear that such an exclamation should be taken not metaphorically, but quite literally. Poimandras is the light, and therefore, if he tells the visionary to fix his mind on the light... The latter responds quite logically by looking into Poimandras's eyes. But because the visionary's mind is, as we have seen, one with the divine mind, both being nothing but light, this means no less than that the visionary is paradoxically looking into his own eyes. The subject experiences the object as being itself the subject, a dazzling experience of groundlessness, that quite understandably brings the visionary beyond himself with fear. Groundlessness is something uh, Heidegger addressed in the Ungrund, and I talk a lot about that in my book. When Poimandris finally lets go of his gaze, the light that is the visionary himself turns out to have become a boundless cosmos, the archetypal reality before an infinite beginning. The spatial-temporal cosmos in which he finds himself turns out to exist as a limitless and eternal reality inside himself. Again, the true nature of existence presents itself as a dazzling paradox. It should be obvious that discursive language and logical rationality, Logos for short, indeed cannot reach as far as a truth of such a kind in analyzing the poimandres we should not allow ourselves to be misled by the fact that quantitatively the bulk of it consists of verbal commentary and discussion whereas the two visions are presented in corpus hermeticum 1 4 through 5 and 7 respectively throughout corpus hermeticum 8 to 26 poimandres explains the visions at length and answers the visionaries questions about them important and interesting though these discussions are for spelling out the contents and implications of the vision, they are not themselves supposed to contain the truth. They consist not of gnosis, but of talk about gnosis. From this perspective, I suggest that Nock and Festugier's subdivision of the Poimandras, which has been adopted by many later scholars, is fundamentally misleading. They saw the text as consisting of a short introduction, 1-3, to three, a revelation consisting of a cosmogony, Four through 11, an anthropology, 12 to 23, and an eschatology, 24 to 26, the apostolic mission of the prophet, 27 to 29, and the final prayer, 30 to 31. Such a subdivision has the effect of reducing the Poimandres to a conventional philosophical treatise while marginalizing or suppressing its central emphasis on gnosis as distinct from mere rational discussion. Instead, I suggest the following subdivision, which highlights Corpus Hermeticum 1, 4 through 7, as the centerpiece of the text 1. Opening of the vision, 1 to 3. 2. Two questions answered by two visionary episodes, 4 through 7. 3. Commentary on these episodes, 8 to 26. 4. Apostolic mission and personal transformation of the visionary, 27 to 30. 5 final prayer 31 to 32 final prayer or properly called doxology a few words finally about these two short final sections and first let's note there is no particular reason to call the visionary of a prophet as done by knock and festugier he makes no predictions about the future but calls on his listeners to wake up to the true nature of reality and of themselves furthermore Corpus Hermeticum 30 is not about the mission at all, but about what the experience has done to him personally. On this aspect, see my following discussion. Having finished his explanations, Poimandras joins with the powers. The visionary comes to himself, gives thanks to God the Father, and begins to proclaim the message to mankind. We must wake up from our state of spiritual sleep and drunkenness and take our share in the immortality that is our birthright. CH 128. Some turn out to reject the message while others take it to heart. As for the visionary himself, he has gained permanent access to another and higher state of consciousness. Quote, the sleep of my body had become sobriety of soul. The closing of my eyes had become true vision. My silence had become pregnant with good. Thus, normal waking consciousness is compared with drunkenness in sleep and opposed to the soberness and clarity to which he gains access in another than the normal waking state. If we translate hotoi somatos hypnos simply as sleep of the body, as done in all the modern editions, we interpret the visionary as stating that he sees the true reality simply when he falls asleep. But how convincing is this, really? We have seen that the vision of the Poimandras occurred during a state when the visionary's bodily senses were suspended, like someone heavy with sleep. Thus, that state is presented as similar to but not identical with normal sleep, and indeed most commentators have interpreted it as an ecstatic state of some kind. Now, if sleep of the body is mentioned again at the very end of the text, it suggests that the vision of truth has now become a regular phenomenon in the visionary's life. This leads us to either one of two possible readings. We can assume that the entire vision took place in a dream, and that now, whenever he falls asleep, he again sees the light. The initial dream vision has become a recurrent dream. This reading might be possible, but if so, it would describe a psychological phenomenon for which I can think of no parallels elsewhere. It seems much more plausible that in this instance, too, the text is not referring to normal sleep to begin with, but to some other kind of altered state to which the visionary has learned to gain access, or which happens to him spontaneously, and which functions for him as an entrance to spiritual vision." It is quite common for trance-like altered states to be loosely referred to as sleep. This is actually common throughout the Bible. Note, in much more recent periods, one might think of, for example, the phenomenon of mesmeric trance in the context of German Romanticism. The spectacular altered states of Friedrich uh, Haufe, known as the Seeress of Prevost, was routinely referred to as sleep, Schlaf, by Justinius Kerner in his famous book about her, but it was well understood by all concerned that this was not normal sleep, and it seems to me that the details of how the Poimandra's vision is described are consistent with some altered state that falls within the wide range of ecstasies, much more than with a normal dream. For a detailed discussion of ecstasis, ecstasy, and related terms, aloesis, kinesis, entheosis, entheosiasmus, daimonismos, thiosmos, apoplexia, and ecplaxis. C.F. Pfister, 1970. For all of you who want to get into that one, because it's a fascinating one to get into. And four, Corpus Hermeticum 13, the rebirth of the pupil. That the attainment of gnosis requires an ecstatic, altered state of consciousness somewhat comparable to sleep is suggested by other passages in the Philosophical Hermetica as well. In Corpus Hermeticum 10, we read that those able to drink somewhat more deeply of the vision often fall asleep. Catacomizontoi. <laughs> Moving out of the body toward a sight most fair. But when the pupil desires to have that experience, Hermes tells him, that he, and surprisingly Hermes himself, is not yet ready for it. Quote, We are still too weak now for this sight. We are not yet strong enough to open our mind's eye and look on the incorruptible, incomprehensible beauty of all that good. In the moment when you have nothing to say about it, you will see it, for the knowledge, Gnosis, of it is divine silence and suppression of all the senses, One who has understood it can understand nothing else, nor can one who has looked on it look on anything else or hear of anything else, nor can he move his body in any way. He stays still, all bodily senses and motions forgotten. Corpus Hermeticum 10, 5-6 As in the beginning of the Poimanders, therefore, the vision of truth by means of the eyes of the mind requires an unusual state in which all the bodily senses are suppressed. The vision described in the Poimandras would seem to have occurred spontaneously, and while its contents are perceived by means of some kind of internal sight, they are still essentially visual. The visionary sees light, a snake-like darkness, Poimandras himself, the cosmos, and the archetypal forms. There is no particular emphasis on ineffability or the incapacity of language to describe what is being shown. In this regard, the text might be seen as representing a level of instruction that is still somewhat lower than the one described in the dialogues that deal with initiation, Corpus Hermeticum 13, and the discourse on the Ogdoad and Ennead. In both cases, the attainment of the vision is not spontaneous, but induced deliberately, and in both cases, there is a very strong emphasis on ineffability and the need for silence. At the beginning of Corpus Hermeticum 13, it has been some time since Hermes Trismegistus came down from the mountain, where undoubtedly he has received a divine revelation. And note, um, Poimandras in the Mind of Sovereignty in Corpus Hermeticum 1315, one might speculate that Hermes's experience on the mountain was in fact understood to be the very experience described in the Poimandras. And his pupil, Tat, is pressing him for knowledge. Tat has studied the general discourses, but they spoke in riddles about divinity, claiming that one must first be reborn. He has also followed Hermes's advice on first stealing himself against the deceit of the cosmos, and now he feels he is ready. He finally wants to learn how to be born again. Hermes responds with some enigmatic statements about the seed of the true good being sown in the womb that consists of the wisdom of understanding in silence. Yes. CH 13.2 for that one. But understandably, this only adds to Tat's frustration. He complains that Hermes still gives him only riddles, instead of speaking to him as a father should speak to a son. Hermes defends himself. It is not that he is deliberately trying to be vague, but that the mystery of rebirth cannot be taught. When Tat keeps insisting, Hermes responds by telling what happened to him, presumably when he was up on the mountain. What can I say, my child? I have nothing to tell except this. Seeing within me an immaterial, aplaston, vision that came from the mercy of God, I went out of myself into an immortal body, and now I am not what I was before. I have been born in mind." This thing cannot be taught, nor can it be seen by this fabricated element through which it is possible to see, i.e. the bodily eyes. Therefore I no longer care about that composed form that used to be mine, i.e. my physical body. Color, touch, or size I no longer have. I am a stranger to them. Now you see me with your eyes, my child, but by gazing with bodily sight you do not understand what I am. I am not seen with such eyes, my child. Note, Kopenhauer has elementary fabrication, but I prefer to give the literal translation given by him in his notes. In context, it is clear that the text means to say quite simply that it cannot be seen by physical eyes. Kopenhauer has, therefore, the initial form, even of my own constitution, is of no concern, but admits to, in his notes That the personal references in the following sense perhaps justify Nock and Festigiers. Looser, je ne a a plus suce de cette première forme composée qui fut la mienne. I have here chosen to be even a bit more loose in order to render more clearly what is undoubtedly intended. Now that he has been reborn in a new immortal body, Hermes no longer cares very much about his old physical body. Here we see Hanegraaff excellently picking uh, accurate translations um, that were disregarded by previous scholars because they didn't sort of really fit the, uh, the logic and narrative that those scholars wanted them to fit. And you see this a lot with source texts. The dialogue that follows is extremely dense with significance most of which, as far as I can tell, has been overlooked by modern commentators. Tat responds that Hermes has thrown him into a state of mania, or madness, and repeats this in different words a bit further on, The risk for modern readers is to take this too lightly, as a mere expression of amazement a bit like somebody reacting to an impressive statement by exclaiming, Wow! But in a context permeated with Platonism, mania refers to the divine madnesses, or frenzies, described in Plato's Phaedrus as altered states that give access to superior knowledge. Now, for an analysis of Plato's four frenzies as altered states, see W.J. Hanegraaff, 2009 publication. We should therefore take Tat's statement literally, not as a mere exclamation, but as an observation about something that is happening to him. Hermes' words have powerfully affected his state of mind. This is borne out by Hermes' reaction. Tat says that in this state of mania, he can now no longer see himself. And Hermes takes this as a hopeful sign that his pupil might indeed be experiencing an ecstatic altered state similar to the one he has just been describing. Sounds a lot like the state of, you know, annihilation in the Ain so or similar to one just that we experience on ecstatic journeys or even psychedelic ones like 5-MEL. His formulation confirms what I said above about sleep-like states that are no real sleep. My child, could it be that you too would have passed out of yourself, as happens to those who are dreaming in sleep, but then in full consciousness. Sort of a lucid dreaming thing going on here. In Corpus Hermeticum 13, verse 4, honograph notes, My translation combines elements from Copenhaver, Fustugier, and Quispel. What's great is we're getting a, a um, composite translation put together from every source up to present by Dr. Honogroff here, for the purposes of really getting at what this text might have meant to the people that used it. Yay! Awesome. Tat repeats that Hermes has thrown him in a speechless stupor, but although he is no longer in the state in which he was before, and note on that, the formulation, (inaudible) tonprin Apolestis Frenon, leaves much space for interpretation. Copenhagen has bereft of what was in my heart before. Vestugier has Ayant perdu mes esprits. He still sees Hermes' external body the way he saw it earlier. This seems to surprise him, presumably because he had expected that his new mode of consciousness would allow him to perceive Hermes' regenerated body. In response, Hermes reminds him that even the mortal body does not stay the same, but changes daily. And this very mutability reveals it to be no more than a deceptive illusion. True reality is entirely different. It is the unsullied, the unlimited, the colorless, the figureless, the indifferent, the naked-seeming, the self-apprehended, the immutable good, the incorporeal. See Corpus Hermeticum 13.6 for the conventionality of such descriptions as referring to divine qualities. Tat realizes that he does not see that reality yet and therefore his present state of consciousness cannot yet be the one of rebirth. Full of disappointment, he exclaims that he had expected Hermes to make him wise, whereas in fact his understanding is still blocked. Corpus medicum 13.6. Hermes confirms this, the true reality cannot be perceived through the senses, but requires a power that is given only through rebirth. Tat must draw that power to himself, ardently wishing for it to come. At the same time, he must suspend the activity of the bodily senses and cleanse himself of the irrational torments of matter. Tat is quite surprised about this information. He never realized that he had tormentors inside himself. Well, that very ignorance, Hermes explains, is the first tormentor. The others are grief, incontinence, lust, injustice, greed, deceit, envy, treachery, anger, recklessness, and malice. Under These twelve are many more, and they use the prison of the body to torture the inward person with the sufferings of sense. Corpus Hermeticum 13.7 But they will gradually withdraw from the one for whom God has mercy. And that is, in fact, what happens during the process of rebirth. Hermes now instructs Tat to keep silent and say nothing, because this is necessary in order to not obstruct the healing process. That will come from God. He then begins to systematically purify Tat from his tormentors by summoning ten divine powers in succession, which drive out the twelve tormentors. Note in Corpus Hermeticum 13, verse 12, Hermes gives some explanation about the relation between the twelve tormentors linked to the twelve zodiacal signs and the decad, which engenders soul. The first seven powers of the decad knowledge, joy, continence, perseverance, justice, liberality, truth, are the direct opposites of the first seven tormentors. The last five tormentors do not have opposites of their own, but are collectively opposed by the triad of good, life, and light. If there's something worth studying in your journal, it's all of that stuff I just covered. We are certainly justified in thinking of the tormentors as demonic entities that had been possessing Tat's body without him being aware of it, in fact, at the end of the healing process, Hermes observes that vanquished, they have flown away in a flapping of wings. <laughs> cool. Corpus Hermeticum 13.9. While I am thoroughly aware of the problematics of the concept of shamanism and how frequently it has been misused for making grand statements, for example, about Greek religion, for an excellent critical analysis, J. N. Bremer, 2002. We should not throw out the baby with the bathwater. The description given here is too closely reminiscent of traditional shamanic healing processes, including the exorcism of demonic entities, for that parallel to be dismissed out of hand. Yes. Thank you, Professor. The purification process does not fail to have its effect on Tat. In another treatise of the Corpus Hermetic... Number eleven, Hermes had been told that one cannot understand God otherwise than by participating in his own mode of perception, that is God's mode of perception. Quote, Make yourself grow to immeasurable immensity, outleap all body, outstrip all time, become eternity and you will understand God. It sounds like the beginning of the Kabbalistic cross that most people skip these days. Having conceived that nothing is impossible to you, consider yourself immortal and able to understand everything, all art, all learning, the temper of every living thing. Go higher than every height and lower than every depth. Collect in yourself all the sensations of what has been made, of fire and water, dry and wet. Be everywhere at once, on land, in the sea, in heaven. Be not yet born. Be in the womb. Be young, old, dead, beyond death, and when you have understood all these at once, times, places, things, qualities, quantities, then you can understand God. Corpus Hermeticum 11, verse 20. And precisely this mode of supranormal perception, not with the sight of the eyes, but with the mental energy that comes through the powers, has now also become available to Tat, I am in heaven, in earth, in water, in air. I am in animals and in plants, in the womb, before the womb, after the womb, everywhere. CH 1311. And more specifically, Tat has also attained the kind of vision described in the second vision within the vision of the Poimandris. I see the universe and I see myself in mind. Hermes confirms that this kind of vision which no longer pictures things in three bodily dimensions, is what is meant by rebirth. Again, the term rebirth must be taken quite literally as the generation of a new immortal body constituted of the newly acquired powers which will never succumb to dissolution. This is emphasized once more in Corpus Hermeticum 13, verse 14. Since he has reached the goal, he has been born a god and a child of the one in a new immortal body. Tat knows what he might expect next. His new body is constituted not of matter but of spiritual powers and should therefore be able to rise above the seven planetary spheres of which the cosmos is constituted and thus attain the eighth sphere. Poimandris had described this to Hermes as the final stage of the initiatic ascent. Quote, And then, stripped of the effects of the cosmic framework he enters the region of the Ogdoad with nothing left to him but his very own power, and together with the beings he hymns the Father. Those present there rejoice about his arrival, and having become like his companions, he also hears certain powers that exist above the region of the Ogdoad, hymning God with sweet voice, and then in well-ordered procession they rise up to the father surrender themselves to the powers and having become powers themselves enter into god such is the happy end for those who have received gnosis to become god ch126 tat therefore tells hermes that he wants to hear the hymns of the ogdoad Hermes approves of his pupil's haste to leave his mortal body behind, but reminds him that Poimandras has transmitted to him only what has been written down. The secrets of the final stage cannot be taught. In other words, Tat should not expect Hermes to tell him how to find his way to the Ogdoad. He will have to rely on his own power to do it. A bit teasingly, perhaps, Hermes adds that as far as he himself is concerned, Poimandras had left it to me to make something beautiful of it, and that he has succeeded. Indeed, the powers are now singing within him and within all things. I think that's a very good description, actually, of the experience of, of a singing within yourself and, and in all the, all the universe around you. It very much does seem that way a lot of the time. Predictably, Tat reacts by saying that he wants to hear and understand them, too. But what are these powers, and where are they? As noted by Van de Broek, the above quotation from CH-126 describes a post-mortem experience where CH-13, like the discourse on the Ogdoad and the Ennead, proceeds to describe the hymn of the powers as an ecstatic experience during this life. Since Tat has now twice repeated that he wants to hear the hymn of the Ogdoad, And since Hermes not only responds positively, but the treatise actually follows him with a secret hymn, it would be quite logical to assume that this hymn is heard during an ecstatic ascent to the Ogdoad and the Ennead. However, something else seems to be intended. I would argue that in the final part of Corpus Hermeticum 13, Tat does not actually gain access to the Ogdoad yet, let alone to the Ennead. Rather, Hermes is giving him a foretaste of that experience by allowing him to listen to the nine, not ten as will be seen, powers that have driven out the twelve tormentors and that are now seeing, not up there above the seven spheres, but within himself and in all things. Admittedly, the difference is a very ambiguous one, and perhaps deliberately so, because the text keeps suggesting that the external cosmos paradoxically, or if one wishes, holographically, exists inside the visionary's own mind, and that the powers are of the same nature as the visionary himself. But nevertheless, when powers are mentioned in the concluding part of Corpus Hermeticum 13, this consistently refers to those that have driven out the tormentors. Note, the concept of holography, has been enthusiastically adopted by authors in the holistic science sector of the New Age movement, inspired notably by the physicist David Bohm and the neurologist Carl Pribram, often leading to wildly imaginative interpretations, see Honograph 96 and 98. But the association with New Age should not keep us from perceiving the applicability of this concept in a context such as the present one. In response to Tat's request, Hermes proceeds to sing... A hymn of praise, in which he addresses those powers within himself, asking them to sing a hymn to the one and the universe. He introduces this as follows. Be still, my child. Now hear a well-tuned hymn of praise, the hymn of rebirth, which I had not thought to reveal so easily, if you had not reached the very end. It cannot be taught, but is a secret kept in silence. Therefore, my child, stand in the open air, Face the south wind when the setting sun descends and bow down in adoration. When the sun returns, bow likewise toward the east. Be still, my child. How should we imagine this scenario? Hermes is certainly not just bursting out in song on the spot. Rather, he gives ritual instructions, first emphasizing the need for silence and then telling his pupil to bow to the south at sunset and to the east at sunrise. Furthermore, Hermes is not singing with the normal bodily voice, nor is he heard by Tat's bodily ears. We should remember that, ever since Tat was purified of the tormentors, the two interlocutors have been communicating on the level of their new, transfigured, immortal, and invisible bodies. Hence, there is no inconsistency in the fact that a hymn is sung and heard and yet it all happens in silence. And it would follow that the text of the hymn, as given in Corpus Hermeticum 13, verse 17 to 20, should not be understood as a literal transcription. Finally, note that this hymn sung in the mind by Hermes should not be confused with the hymn of the powers within him. Of the latter, no description is given at all. Hermes begins by addressing the universe the earth, the trees, the heavens, winds, and planets, to pay attention because he is about to sing a hymn to their creator, who is the mind's eye. Ho, to new ophthalmos. Then he addresses the powers within him, asking them to sing to the one and the universe. Note that the decad of Corpus Medicum 13, 8-9 seems to have changed into an ennead, for perseverance is not mentioned. But this could be a simple copyist's error. And apparently they respond to his call. This is what the powers within me shout. They, him, the universe. It's important to remember for those listening that the him hymn and hymning I keep saying is H-Y-M-N. It's a uh, sometimes why I pronounce the N at the end, "hymna." So you just know because not everyone will take that for granted unless you're in church every Sunday. Sing in your hymns. Yeah. Again, about the Song of the Powers itself, no further information is given, but it is implied that Hermes and Tat are both hearing it. When the hymn is finished, Tat says that he has copied it or noted it down in his cosmos. It's a fascinating way of looking at it. But Hermes corrects him. He should say, in the world of his mind, or in intelligible cosmos. And toy no Presumably, this is to emphasize the difference between what happens in the material cosmos and what happens on the transfigured level where the hymn has been sung. That's really cool. (laughs) There's a difference between what happens in the material physical world and what happens on the transfigured level where the hymn has been sung. Freaking cool. Tat's mind is now completely illuminated, and he likewise wishes to send praise to God. Hermes warns him not to be too rash or heedless, but is reassured by Tat that he will only be saying what he sees in his own mind. He then briefly asks God to accept his offerings in gratefulness for the gift of rebirth. Corpus Hermeticum 13 ends with Hermes reminding Tat that he must keep silent about the miracle of rebirth and tell no one about it, a perfect example of the paradox of secrecy, which is broken in the very act of being emphasized. The ascent to the Ogdoad and the Ennead. I have argued that Corpus Hermeticum 13, chapter that is, does not include an ascent to the Ogdoad and the Ennead, in spite of the reference to such an ascent in Corpus Hermeticum 13, 15, verse 15, and Tat's expression of hope that he may be granted that experience. When Tat was purified of his tormentors and reborn in an immortal body, he attained the cosmic vision described in Corpus Hermeticum 11, verse 20. But clearly this vision was still limited to the region of the seven planetary spheres, for otherwise he would not have expressed a wish to hear the hymns of powers in the eighth sphere. Rather than hearing those hymns, however, what he got to hear was the Song of the Nine, or ten powers within Hermes and himself, and in any case he might hear them sing, but nothing in Corpus Hermeticum 13 indicates that he saw anything. This changes with the second Hermetic initiation, known to us, first discovered at Nag Hammadi in 1945, and of revolutionary importance for our understanding of Hermetic religiosity. And by that he means how those who actually believe or follow this text perceive it. So my approach here, for example, would not be considered an academic approach to this text. It would be considered one of religiosity because I actually consider this text to be somehow of relevance to my own spiritual life, If you, which you can't have if you're doing uh, independent academic study. Like Honograph, for example, does not consider this text to have importance to his own spiritual life. So, therefore, he's free of the sin of religiosity, whereas, you know, you and I are probably guilty of it if we're listening to this podcast. That doesn't mean we can't take and look at things scholarly and academically. It just means that this can be seen in two ways for us, right? Uh, note the untitled treatise known as the Ogdoad and the Ennead was first translated by J.M. Robinson in 1988. Um, Hanegraaff says he has mostly used French translation with Coptic original by J.P. Mahe, 1978, and the very recent Dutch translation by R. van der Broek, 2006, with an extensive commentaries that also take into account other editions by Dirkse, Braschler, and Perrault, 1979. Quotations refer to pages of the Nag Hammadi manuscript. As is well known, Mahe's two volume study focusing on the Nag Hammadi Hermetica and the Armenian Hermetic definitions Mahe 1978 and 1982 has revolutionized research in the field leading the Greek centered classicist paradigm like Murescu's the immortality key that just came out linked to the name of Festugier to be replaced by one, a new one that fully acknowledges the Egyptian and religious dimension of the hermetic literature. Amen. So just to recap that, this changes with the second hermetic initiation known to us first discovered at Nahamadi in 1945 and of re- revolutionary importance for our understanding of hermetic religiosity, the short but fascinating treatise known as the Discourse on the Ogdoad and Ennead. The unnamed pupil in this treatise begins by reminding Hermes that the day before he had promised to lead his intellect first to the eighth, and then to the ninth sphere. Hermes reacts to this with a word of caution. The promise was made only insofar as such a thing lies within the range of human possibility, and only on the assumption that the pupil has properly integrated the teachings of the preceding stages. He goes on to explain the basic process of spiritual generation, or rebirth, from the divine power. Hermes had received spirit, and this means that he has quite literally been made pregnant by the power. That is, the spirit functions here as a kind of spiritual seed. The energy of that spirit he then transmitted to his pupil, so that the higher insight or understanding is now present in the latter. And, of course, we do know from uh, other research, especially highlighted in Chris Bennett's book, Drug, Sex, Violence in the Bible, that um, uh, there was a lot of Gnostic cults that transmitted their spiritual seed through um, sexual acts from teacher to student. Yes, from cock to mouth, as it were. Yes, this was a common practice among certain Gnostic sects. Thus the pupil has been born from Hermes as one of his spiritual sons, for Hermes has brought forth many children who are therefore the pupil's brothers. It is important to realize that whereas Corpus Hermeticum 13 describes the rebirth of the pupil, the discourse on the Ogdoad and the Ennead begins at a point where the pupil has already been reborn. This is a quite straightforward argument in favor of a sequential order describing successive levels of initiation." First, Hermes, together with the pupil and his sons, will pray to God to give him the spirit to speak. Such a request for inspiration is not unusual, as noted by Vanderbrook, but in view of how the initiation is about to develop, I suggest that the word inspiration must be taken quite literally. During the initiation process, a higher divine power will be speaking through Hermes' mouth from Where he can transmit the life giving word to his pupil. In contemporary parlance, Hermes will be channeling the divine. Some initial support for such a reading can already be found in the passage immediately before the prayer. The pupil says, The efficacious power of what you have spoken I will receive from you, Father. And even more suggestive, Hermes says that. They will ask for the gift of the eighth sphere to come to them, so that each of them will receive what he needs. You, the gift of knowledge, me, on the other hand, to be able to speak from the fountain that wells up in me. Indeed, we will see that this exactly describes the respective roles played by Hermes and the pupil during the initiation. Then follows the prayer, Nag Six fifty-five to 57 Hermes' lengthy opening invocation need not be discussed here in great detail, but begins by calling attention to God's supreme divine attributes, including the fact that he is named only in silence. An interesting note on earlier when the student said efficacious power, Hanegraaff notes inter alia, I am thinking here of a parallel in Corpus Hermeticum 16, verse 2, about the operative power of the egyptian language as opposed to the empty speech of greek philosophy for the greeks o king have no words that are fit only for practical demonstrations and that is the philosophy of the greeks a mere noise of words but we are not using words but sounds of great power on this rather commonplace opposition see also the footnote in 80 knock and a festugier 9192 and more it's a. this is an essay you'll, you'll keep coming back to for some of you scholars out there and lovers of the Corpus Hermeticum and initiation practice and all that. I've drawn heavily from it for a revision of an old piece that I'm putting out. And yes, but you should hear the whole thing. It's, it's wonderful. Check this out. This first part of the prayer ends with a string of mysterious words and vowels that represent God's secret name.
1: Zogzak Thazo, Ao Zozazoth Nagmadi Library,
0: six fifty six. Hermes then asked God for the gift of wisdom, since he and his sons have been living in piety have been following his law, and have done everything to be granted the supreme vision. Finally, before offering God sacrifices in gratitude for his grace, Hermes puts a strong emphasis on God's generative power. And then, suddenly, everything happens very quickly. The prayer is followed by a ritual kiss or embrace, aspasmos, and fun about a spasmos in view of the earlier emphasis on spiritual procreation as basic to the initiatic process, a parallel with the Gospel of Philip, is highly suggestive. For it is by a kiss that the perfect conceive and give birth. For this reason we also kiss one another. We receive conception from the grace which is in one another. Nag 2.3 which seems to have an immediate effect, as noted by Hermes. The aspasmos has an immediate effect. Rejoice of this already from them. The power that is light is coming towards us. Note, according to Vanderbroek, it is not very clear what them refers to. And Mahé adds, le être supérieur. Mahé, 75. I confess I find nothing puzzling about it. Hermes has been invoking the powers of the Ogdoad and the Ennead, and now they arrive, or at least their power does. Similar to what we saw in the Poimandras, God himself remains a transcendent mystery. So, the prayer is silence. Then there's the end of the prayer, which is that long sequence of vowel sounds, uh, book no, bookended with divine names. And then there's a kiss or embrace, a spasmos. And Hermes says, rejoice of this already from them, and the power uh, that is light is coming towards us. So already the power of the Ogdoad and the Ennead, the eight and the nine, the power that is light is coming towards us. How interesting is that? So obviously it's tempting to say, look, it's the first two supernals of Bina and Chachmah, understanding and wisdom coming to us. That's tempting to use this text for Kabbalistic interpretation, which is, you know, that's very religiosity. (laughs) But it's it's what we're doing here. That's interesting. So probably some of these groups took espasmos further than others. For some it was a ritual kiss or a hug. And some, it was like full BDSM come guzzling. That 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 was probably the case, because these practices weren't isolated, and they were done by different groups of Gnostics. So it's a hypothesis. And we're just having fun with it. Chill out, relax. It's snowing. The initiation is spectacularly successful. From one moment to the next, the pupil has passed into an ecstatic visionary state and starts to describe his experience. See, I bet this is how Zink wishes. His, Wishes things were in his day. There's there's a there's ritual a group leaders out there. There's occult leaders out there that you can see just loving to interpret this from a, a highly sexual paradigm. And uh, you know, for those orgiastic groups that still thrive and strive and do their thing, good for you, more power to you. A problem in interpreting what follows is that we cannot know for certain which passages must be attributed to Hermes and which ones to the pupil. Van de numbering and commentaries imply, although he does not spell this out explicitly, that we are dealing with a continuous dialogue rather than a few blocks of text for Hermes and the pupil respectively, as argued by Camplani. And I find this reading the most convincing by far. Of particular importance, in my opinion, is that the result is a conversation in which only the pupil is having a visionary experience, whereas Hermes's role is strictly that of a guide. Having initiated the pupil's experience by means of a, the kiss or embrace, he now comments on the pupil's exclamations and guides him through his experience. Presumably, he can understand the pupil's utterances because at his own initiation he has had the same experience, but nothing suggests that he is having that experience right now. If we follow this interpretation, the dialogue looks as follows. Pupil, I see, yes, I see unspeakable depths. Hermes, how shall I tell you, my son of place? How shall I speak about the all? I am the mind. Pupil, I also see a mind that moves the soul. By a holy ecstasy, I see him that moves me. You give me power. I see myself. I want to speak. Fear holds me back. I have found the beginning of the power above all powers. Who does not have himself a beginning? I see a fountain bubbling with life. Now, a note on that I am mind bit that Hermes says. Mahe translates it as intellect, vanderbroek as geist, which is German geister, the root of the English word ghost, so spirit. In the present context, though, Hanegraaff argues mind seems the most logical translation since the text uses the Coptic equivalent of noose. And because, as we have seen above, the discovery of the visionary's own noose is identical with the divine noose, which is light, is a constant feature everywhere. So... The depths that are suddenly perceived by the pupil are unspeakable, and indeed Hermes' commentary states that he cannot say anything about them. The divine mind perceived by the pupil, which is the very fountain of life, turns out to be both Hermes' and the pupil's own mind. In other words, the experience is exactly equivalent to the second vision within the vision described in the andrus and as happened, In that case, when the pupil realizes that the divine mind is his own mind, so that he is literally looking at himself, his initial reaction is one of fear. No shit. The text continues. Hermes, I have told you, my son, that I am the mind. Pupil, I have seen. It is impossible to express this in words. Hermes, that's right, my son. For the entire eighth sphere and the souls that are in it and the angels are singing their hymns in silence. But I, mind, understand them. Pupil, how should one sing those hymns? I see that speaking with you is not possible anymore. I keep silent, Father. I want to hymn you in silence. Hermes, yes, do so, for I am the mind. Well wow, that's some serious babe of the abyss shit, isn't it? Oh. Good stuff. The text could also be translated as, I see another mind that moves the soul, as in Mahe. But look, but like uh, Vanderbroek, I prefer this translation because it results in a more logical dialogue. And this stuff's repeated later again in the Nakamati 6 throughout. So now that the pupil has had the decisive vision of mind as his own mind, he is about to express himself in the manner appropriate to souls that have attained the eighth sphere. And that would be in Kabbalah, for you Kabbalists, going from Hesed across the abyss of Da'at to Binah. And this is done by means of silent hymns that are heard and understood only by an interior faculty of perception, which is fascinatingly parallel to even what alistair crowley in my uh, podcast eponymous knowledge or magic without tears book talks about um when he crosses the abyss which is the practice of the neophyte the great sign of the neophyte being the tool to pass by on the chatterer and the voice that dweller and we pass through it in silence that's how you cross the abyss sign of silence by means of silent hymns that we are heard, like Hippocrates, right? And understood only by an interior faculty of perception, which is like the mind of God seen in the mind of, of us, of the self, like Hippocrates. We've seen earlier that the final stage of the ascent must be mastered by the pupil alone, and that verbal instruction is useless. I was talking with this about, with a 7-4 the other day. And uh, he was talking about how some of the work in the second order upper grades of 6-5 and 7-4, like one of the stages there is literally to make your own system and then attain the same thing you've achieved already, but through a new system. That's a fascinating feature, I think. By the pupil alone and the verbal instruction is useless. So even beyond that, it's always about this uh, process of annihilation, which is integration. It's actually integration. It's annihilating like the boundaries that lead to integration. This is exactly what happens here. The, The pupil now takes the initiative and does the rest on his own power. Hermes' words are no longer of any use. Before looking at what happens next, it is important to note the radicality of the last sentences just quoted. It is well understood that the souls and angels in the eighth sphere are hymning God, the divine father of all. But actually, the pupil tells his father, Hermes, that he wants to sing a hymn to him. Hermes' reaction indicates that this is not taken as blasphemy but as reflecting a correct understanding of the basic message, Hermes is the divine mind and therefore can be addressed as such. a The text continues. Pupil, Hermes, I understand the mind that cannot be interpreted because it is enclosed within itself. I rejoice, Father, because I see you smile. The all rejoices. Therefore, no creature will be deprived of your life, for you Are the citizens Lord everywhere? Your providence preserves us. I invoke you, Father, Aeon of Aeons, divine spirit of life, who showers everyone with spiritual rain. What do you say of that, Father Hermes? Hermes, I say nothing about it, my son, for we must be silent to God about what is hidden. The repetition of the same word for rejoicing can be interpreted here as reflecting the fact that the pupil himself is the mind as well. And therefore, when he rejoices at the smile of Hermes' mind, it is the all that rejoices at his own smile of rejoice, about his own smile of rejoice. Again, the radical collapse of any distinction between subject and object leads to a paradoxical vision of the groundlessness of the ground of being. (laughs) Hanagraaff went all. Heidegger on us, the pupil now proceeds. But this is what these guys are always talking about. These philosophers, they're talking about these mystical things from way back when. That's what they were talking about. You can see it is commenting on religious practices of the day, because these were groups of people really doing this stuff. I always like to think how popular most texts must have been to survive to present day. It's it's rare that a rare text survived. More likely that a popular text survived. Maybe the Corpus Hermeticum like, was like, you know, men's maxim for like the 100s. <laughs> and think of how popular these all-or-one, one-or-all texts and religious scripts would, be pop- would have been popular in like orgiastic sex right groups and cults that they had all over the place. Yeah, popular stuff. The pupil now proceeds to the actual singing of his silent hymn. And appropriately, the text says absolutely nothing about its contents. But while he is in the middle of it, the pupil seems to have a moment of fear. When his confidence falters, he breaks the silence, and Hermes has to tell him to bring his focus back to the hymn. Pupil, O Trismegistus, let not my soul be deprived of the divine contemplation, for as the universal master, you have power over everything. Hermes, return to the hymn, my son, and do it in silence. Ask what you want in silence. Note, the reason we know that there is a moment of doubt that occurs in the midst of the hymn that follows, that just followed is from the fact that Hermes tells him to turn back to it. So that's how we know that there was a break in attention. Not because it said there was a break in attention, but because of the chastisement to get back to what you were doing. The pupil follows his advice, and with success. When he had finished the hymn, he exclaimed, Pupil, Father Trismegistus, what shall I say? We have received this light, and I see this same vision in you. And I see the Ogdoad and the souls in it, and the angels singing hymns to the Eniad and her powers. And I see him who has power over all of them, and who creates by the Spirit. Hermes, it is good that from now on we keep silence. Do not speak too hastily about the vision. From now on we must sing hymns to the Father until the day we will leave this body. It is important to note that the pupil has seen the visions in Hermes, that is to say, in a manner how exactly equivalent to how Hermes had first seen his vision within the vision in Poimandras, whose body had changed into light. However, we are here dealing with a higher level than the one described in the Poimandras. What is seen is not the creation of the world, but the eternal sphere of the Ogdoad and the Ennead above the domain of change and generation. Right? Because these are, those spheres are above the seven planets. Again, like the supernals, except, you know, it doesn't really work because yeah, I mean, none of these things fit with Kabbalah. They don't. Don't ever think that these people were Kabbalists, right? Because other models fit just as well. You could put the Da'at situation and in crossing in silence down with the paraquet veil in Tifred if you're doing a lot of Hermetic Kabbalah. Also, the 10 could be the Sof, the infinite. That could be the 10th. And the Ogdoad and Eniad can be Hakma and Keter. There's different models of Kabbalah. So remember, it's just a system to help us understand experiences. Not The goal is not to understand it as the experience. The Kabbalistic Tree of Life is not the experience you want to have. Nature, real, reality, is the experience you want to have. The Kabbalistic Tree of Life might just help you understand some of those experiences and structure, especially initiatic spiritual journeys, in a successive way up that ladder of lights. The initiation has been completed. The pupil has now found peace and wants to thank God for having granted him the supreme vision he had been asking for. A distinction is implied between the silent hymn of contemplation that was sung during the ecstatic state of the Ogdoad and Ennead and verbal hymns that may be addressed to God afterwards as signs of gratitude such a hymn is now sung by the pupil, and as a counterpart of the opening invocation that preceded the initiation, it again ends with a sequence of vowels. Ah, So on. That's again from the Nag Hammadi, 660 to sixty one. The rest of the text is interesting, but less relevant for us here. Hermes is instructed to write everything down in hieroglyphs on steles of turquoise, place them in Hermes's sanctuary at the right astrological moment, and protect the book with an apotropaic formula. Presumably, then, it is the text of this very book that we have been analyzing. Concluding Remarks the context of experience. We may readily agree with André-Jean Festugier and later scholars about the philosophical inconsistencies in the Hermetica, but I can find no such inconsistencies in how the core message of the way towards Gnosis is explained and described. On the contrary, there is a compelling internal logic to both theory and practice. In the three basic texts we have been analyzing, Corpus Hermeticum One Thirteen and Nag Hammadi Six mutually complement and confirm one another even in regard to small details. In order to make this tight consistency visible, we need to place the three treatises in a sequence. The initial illumination leading to knowledge of the world and of God is described in the first one. This is followed by the process of rebirth described in the second, and the sequence culminates in a description of how the already reborn pupil is initiated into the eighth and the ninth we are certainly not dealing here with a vague and irrational obscurantism that could be shrugged off as undeserving of close analysis. On the contrary, what we find is a very precise and carefully formulated doctrine of how one may move from the domain of rational discourse to the attainment of several transrational stages of direct experiential knowledge, and thereby from the limited and temporal domain of material reality to the unlimited and eternal one of mind. There can be no doubt that this process was believed to require a profound alteration of the initiate's habitual state of consciousness. Gnosis could only be attained in an unusual ecstatic state. What we do not know is how exactly such a state was induced. In the Poymandras, it is just seems to happen to Hermes, presumably by the grace of God, although the breakthrough is prepared by intensive intellectual reflection on the nature of reality. In Corpus Hermeticum 13, the process is more complex. Hermes' description of what has happened to him seems to trigger a similar process in Tat. I love that the recapitulation of of the initiation to someone else is initiation in and of itself. But several ritual acts are required in order for his faculty of understanding to get really unblocked. So we can't just read an initiation or be told it from someone who's experienced it. There are ritual acts that are required, even back then. Cat must first be purified of his tormentors. So self-development is an important factor, transformation of basic morals and habits. Who are exercised by the higher powers that Hermes invokes which are the spheres or powers and planets, definitely the planets and their angels and gods. And next, to hear the hymn of the powers, he must bow down in adoration at the rising and setting of the sun while Hermes prays to God and again invokes the powers. In the discourse on the Ogdoad and the Ennead, finally, the initiation is once more introduced by prayerful invocations. But now, the decisive alteration of consciousness seems to be triggered by a ritual kiss or embrace. Mm -hmm. Such descriptions cannot fail to lead us back, finally, to the vexed question of whether there actually existed organized communities of hermetic devotees where such initiations were practiced, as has been forcefully argued, for example, by Jean-Pierre Mahé, or whether the texts. (coughs) should be understood as no more than Les Mysteriens, as argued by Festugier, who adopted the term, but not its intended meaning, from Richard Reitzenstein. Scholars have taken various positions with respect to that question, but the truth is that we do not know. I would suggest that the problem is not so much this fact in itself, to which we may simply have to resign ourselves, but the implicit assumptions that tend to accompany the two alternatives, and which create the impression that they are incompatible. If one reads the Hermetica as reflecting practices that actually took place, this still does not allow us to read them naively as a kind of first-hand eyewitness reports. For this, they are far too literary and composed, reflecting an evident intention of didactic use. And for regard in that discussion, see Vanderbroek, 2006, which is interesting, looking at these texts as uh, hymnals, in a sense, or um, liturgia, on the other hand, Festugier's concept of les mystériens, just the mysteries, is linked to another concept of his that of literary fictions chosen for the very title of the chapter in which he discusses ecstatic revelations. Yeah, he really thought all this stuff was a bunch of bullshit and that no one ever did any any crazy stuff like this. For us moderns, he writes, it is evident that descriptions of such revelations comportant au fond de vérité and if people in the Hellenistic period believed in them, the only possible explanation is their limitless credulity. So, any time, yeah, the only chance that any there was of any people ever believing any of this stuff or thinking it was interesting or had any value, is if because they were totally stupid. That's that's this is the old mentality of scholarship. You know, we are we are the evolved race, best anything that any humans have ever achieved, and they were a bunch of of, of idiots. Hanegraaff says, about the latter opinion, it is, of course, pointless to fight, but the idea that people cannot possibly have had such experiences, and must therefore have invented them, reflects a peculiar blindness on Festugier's part. No shit. Quite on the contrary, people have such experiences so frequently that they have been reported through all periods of history and all over the world. Therefore, if the Hermetica were intended as lays. Mysterien, in some sense, and even if the accounts are fictional inventions, this implies neither that the experiences have aucune forme de vérité, nor that there were no communities that used them. It seems most plausible to me that the Hermetic treatises originated in loosely organized circles or networks of people in the educated milieus of Hellenistic Egypt who were convinced that experiences like these were possible, and which almost certainly included at least a few people who had had them themselves, or were having them on a regular basis. Their altered states may well have been spontaneous, like the one described in the Poimandras, but could also be facilitated or induced by triggers of various kinds, and undoubtedly the contents of their experiences were strongly conditioned by their prior beliefs. The various contents as well as the internal logic of their belief system allowed them to define quite precisely what one could expect to happen during the higher and ultimate stages of the progress towards Gnosis, to which they must all have aspired. I suspect that ritual purifications and higher invocations of higher powers, as described in Corpus Hermeticum 13, may well have been practiced, but such practices do not require an organized group or a congregation For example, it is easy to imagine one advanced believer in the hermetic religion trying to heal another believer of his tormentors, quite similar to the way such healings are still being practiced in the circuits of alternative spirituality today. Among the members of such circles or networks, various kinds of texts must have circulated, not only those that answered all kinds of questions of a doctrinal, theological, or philosophical nature, the general discourses and perhaps further discourses, but also les mystériens that provided an idealized description of the successful attainment of Gnosis. Even as fictions read by individuals, such texts would have functioned as ideal models and sources of inspiration for their readers, who must have hoped that what had happened to Hermes and Tat might happen to them one day if only they persisted in the spiritual practice of diligent study and stealing themselves against the deceit of the cosmos. Perhaps they might even be granted the gift of the Ogdoad and the Ennead one day, when a brother who had already attained the highest level would open that domain to them by means of a ritual kiss or embrace. In sum, we need no formal organizations or quasi-Masonic hermetic lodges to take the Hermetica seriously as the reflection of actual religious practice. It's funny that he's made no references to, uh, you know, spiked wines or uh, drugs or entheogens at all. Even though he wrote a brilliant article on eset- enthe- entheogenic esotericism I covered. So check out Hanegraaff on entheogenic esotericism. So he's aware of it today, but he doesn't. He, they, these guys aren't allowed to consider it was a part of our history. That's still redacted, especially in 2008 when this was written. Otherwise, this is brilliant, as I'm sure you agree. And uh, Festugier's concepts of laissez-mystérien, and just literary mysteries. That's what laissez-mystérien means. <laughs> I fucked up before. Uh, need not imply a rejection or marginalization of ecstatic or altered states, either as basic conditions for how the attainment of gnosis was believed to take place, or as a theoretical framework for making sense of late antique hermitism. Not hermeticism, because that describes Renaissance and beyond. Hermitism. And finally, although it is true that Le secret de coeur remains necessarily beyond the reach of scholarly research, and although Wittgenstein is right that one must be silent about that of which one cannot speak, none of this implies that scholars of the Hermetica can afford to ignore or marginalize the role and importance of ecstatic and other altered states of consciousness, as has mostly been the case so far. Aha. So you can really see here, honograph laying the groundwork for getting into anthogenic uh, underst- readings of history and religion later on. That 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 trajectory is very visible back in this 2008 article, which I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Cheers.
1: Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, golden dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information, to order any of its products, please visit www.HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk. That's HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and... uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of scott's discovery of witchcraft which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh till the end of may i believe so check it out now hermetic science, enterprises.co.uk.